0: Hey, you're listening to The Take Back. On this episode, we interviewed Stanford senior Rochelle Ballantyne, and we talked about some really cool stuff, um, including her journey to becoming the first black woman chess master.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Rochelle has had really in a very exciting journey up until this point and as a senior at Stanford uh, she's kind of in this place an inflection point in which she's figuring out what uh, her next steps look like and uh, we've learned everything about you know chess and that grandmaster status all the way up until what she's looking to do uh, as she goes off to law school so uh, such a dynamic conversation with Rochelle and we're really excited to share this with you so thank you for joining the take back and enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, this is Kelsey.
0: And this is Autumn.
2: We're excited to have Rochelle Ballantyne uh, from the class of 2017 with us today. Uh, Rochelle is a amazing uh, senior. Uh, that's gearing up for graduation, and I, I assume in just a few weeks, um, who's been doing a ton of great uh, leadership and, and activism work on campus, but then also has a really amazing story uh, off campus as well. So um, we're really excited to hear, you know, Rochelle's perspective on, on the world, what's going on at Stanford, and, and just to get a better sense as to, you know, her life and, and her story up until this point. Uh, so Rochelle, how are you?
3: Hi, um, I'm I'm pretty good. It's 90 degrees here in sunny Stanford, California. Uh, senior spring, <laughs> uh, trying to finish up my honors thesis so I can graduate.
2: <laughs> Ooh, uh, what's the what's the thesis in?
3: Um, I'm writing an honors thesis on implicit bias in media. So essentially, I'm positing that because police officers are human beings and because they're exposed to the same Um, tropes and images that the rest of society is they are also more likely to have negative biases towards african-americans and that can lead to violence because they have more power
2: okay great uh so before we jump into the meat of that uh, because I think there's a whole lot to unpack there in your <laughs> honors thesis. Um, <laughs> I would love for you to, you know, do an introduction uh, for us. So folks that don't know who you are or not receiving your emails through the diaspora, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, <laughs> um, who are you from, you know, prior to being at Stanford? And, and, you know, tell us a little bit about your Stanford experience right now. Sure.
3: Okay. So um, like Kelsey said, I'm Michelle. Um, I'm a senior. Double majoring in political science in African and African African American studies. Um, I'm the oldest of four, grew up in a single parent household in Brooklyn, New York. Um, what do I, I like to cook and swim and <laughs> watch movies uh, when I have time because I don't, because I'm a senior doing fun stuff, kind of.
2: Kind of. <laughs> a little apprehension to, fi- to finish that up um so so what's, what's your Sanford experience been like so far I guess um, you know I I, think, I, I'm sure you're reflecting a little bit now
3: uh, oh yeah for sure we still have those like if you really knew me that's a black house um there's a black community services center throws and I just did mine and it was very emotional um I think just like mm. it hit me that I'm graduating finally and just like being asked questions about like about how my my four years have been it's definitely a love-hate relationship Um, I think coming to Stanford was a bit of a culture shock for me because I'm very much used to city life, fast paced, nothing's ever closed. Um, And then coming here, I felt very trapped. Um, Like freshman year, not so much because I was very excited to get away from home um, and experience a new environment. But I think as I got older um, and I calmed down a bit, I I started to feel, um, yeah, definitely like suffocated by the Stanford bubble. Um, Hmm. Granted, I have been able to like, I think the best part about Stanford um, is the African African American Studies Department and the Black House and just like all the spaces that Stanford provides for for people to like grow into their identity. Um, Blackness wasn't really something talked about in my community because my mom's Caribbean, and so, like, we already knew we were Black. Um, we didn't come into, like, the con- race is a construct and, like, the impact it has on society. And so coming here um, and understanding, like, how my – how being both Black and a woman plays into societal uh, roles or standards um, was kind of hard and weird for me. Um, and so I was always – pre-law and so i knew that i was going to do poli sci as a major um, but i think declaring triple as wasn't something that i was used to but it was something that i had to do because i wanted to learn more about who i was um, and i think i that in the past four years the past four years here um, i've come into who i am who i want to be as a person definitely still a work in progress definitely still growing um, but definitely grateful for all the blacky, black, black opportunities that I've had to shape who I am.
2: That's great. Um, blacky, <laughs> black, black. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, the the person that you understand yourself to be now. Um, you've explored your identity uh, and you also, you know, have come into your own. So describe that. Who is Rochelle?
3: Who is Rochelle? Wow, what a big question. I don't know. It kind of changes every day. Like there's one day that I like a certain thing that i I know like this is who I am, and then there's another day when that changes. But I think what will forever be the same is that I am a Brooklyn girl, for sure. Um, I'm also Trinidadian. Um, and so coming into Car- my Caribbean identity and like the the dichotomy between African American and Caribbean people and African people, um, that was an interesting journey. Um I will always be an older sister to my three younger siblings. Um, I will always be my mom's right hand. Um, And I, I don't know, I just hope to be a person that is caring and compassionate and helps people along their journey, just like people have helped me along their journey. And that kind of, those are kind of like the driving factors that um, motivate my day to day.
2: I've done quite a bit of research and I know that uh, you are a very storied chess player. Um, I'm sure this is something that you get time and time again, no matter who it is that you're speaking with. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about that part of your life, um, some of the inspiration, but then also um, where are you right now in in, in your relationship with chess?
3: Right. Um, so my grandmother taught me how to play chess when I was eight, um, and it was so my mom worked worked a lot, and so I would stay over by my grandma, me and my siblings. Um, apparently, I was the rowdiest of my siblings. And so, in order to calm me down, um, she taught me how to play tennis. Um And at first, like, I hated it. I didn't want to be sitting down um, for sure, um, thinking about moves that I didn't really care about or understand. But then she kept beating me. And she's like, my grandma is uh, or was uh, a jokester. And so she'd like, she'd like really drive it home that, that I was losing to her um, and that I shouldn't be losing to her. Um, and it kind of like developed my competitive spirit, if you will.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and so as soon as the chess club started at my elementary school, I joined it immediately just so that I can beat her, ended up beating her, <laughs> but ended up really liking <laughs> that feeling of beating people and proving them wrong. Um, and then also like getting to go to tournaments and missing school, I think was definitely a seller for me. Um, and so, yeah, so now uh, after elementary school I went to one of the best chess programs in the country which happened to be like a, okay. a inner city school in, in Williamsburg um, became team captain, led my team to like victories, yay also had some wins of myself um, got to travel to Brazil and um, wow. it was oh, Brazil, oh and Dubai um, and just all over the country so i did brazil when i was i want to say 15 and then dubai was probably the year after or two years after oh no 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 No. dubai was when i was a freshman in college yeah so i went to dubai my freshman year and i went to brazil two years before that yeah so 15 16 and then 18 19. um And so, yeah, and I got to like meet a bunch of cool people and like, I don't know, I think what I love the most about chess is is the bringing people together, but also definitely like the proving people wrong because no one would imagine a black girl from Brooklyn um, could play chess and be good at it. Um, And so while all that was happening, Brooklyn Castle, which is a film about the chess program at... Um, my middle school, but also about the effects of of taking away um, after school programs because education cuts were happening during that time, um, and how it affects okay. uh, inner city kids um, was happening. And I happened to be captain, so I was first one of the main main stars of the movie. Um, and I didn't appreciate then because like. I was mic'd all the time, so I couldn't curse in front of my friends and, like, (laughs) like, be natural. But I was like, I don't want to be natural. Like, how does one be natural? My mom's going to watch this. Um, But now, as I look back on it, I see the importance of, like, of of after-school programs, not just for me, but for those who have come after me who are able to also Mm -hmm. experience traveling across the country and across the world doing what they love. And now I'm here.
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's an awesome story. Tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the, the budget cuts. Um, what, how, how much money was cut from, from the school? And, and, right. and how so, did that impact you know you guys's ability to, to play at a competitive level, go to the tournaments that you needed, so on and so forth.
3: Mm-hmm. So every year, um, three eighteen, which is the name of the school, is three eighteen, is able to like take about fifty or so kids to the big nationals. So there's Gray Nationals, which is where you compete with everyone in your grade, which happens in Florida. Then there's Super Nationals, which happens um, every four years. And then there's also, like, state championships and, like, probably – oh, and Girls Nationals, um, which are the four that I always qualified for. Um, So Gray Nationals Hmm. is in Florida, and so they would – we would leave, like, a couple days earlier, and we'd always go to Disney World. Um, And, like, everything (laughs) – all of these trips were, like, expense – all expenses paid – um wow so like disney world super nationals was in tennessee girls nationals was in chicago um state championships with just like a bus ride up um, and we didn't have to pay for anything um but once the budget cuts started happening we could still go to some of those tournaments but not as many people could go so it was really like mm. you have to get to a certain rating in order to go because we can't afford to take as many anymore and that, yeah. that's what happened 6th grade and then, or that's what happened 7th grade and then 8th grade, it was kind of like, okay, we still don't have enough money, so now even the people who have to go, you all have to sell off the fundraise. And we would sell candy boxes in order to raise enough money to pay for our ticket to wow. um, these tournaments. And because we were given that much money to go to these tournaments, that means other after school programs were cut. So we also had a really good band program and they had to like cut in order to send us these tournaments and the robotics team like everyone had to to give something in order for like us to maintain our title uh, and it sucks because why should we get to go somewhere when like all these people all these other kids are putting in just as much work as we are um, to do what they love too
2: for my mic check this week i definitely want to shout out headspace Uh, It's an app that I'm sure if you've been listening to podcasts or you've been on Twitter or anywhere on the Internet as of late, um, you've probably seen it before. Uh, But it's an app that essentially helps you to go through guided meditation. Uh, So whether you're gearing up for uh, a big, you know, sports event or you're gearing up for a really large presentation, um, it gives you tangible 10 minute guided meditation that allows for you to um, get in gear, you know, think and kind of de-stress and then prepare for whatever is next up. Uh, I use it. I use it every morning. Headspace has honestly been such a helpful uh, tool for me as I tackle all of the stressors and and things that I I think about throughout the day. So if you have probably 99 cents or $1.99, I can't remember how how much it costs. I think it's actually free to start out. If you want to check out Headspace, just visit the App Store and and, and give it a go. There are 10 sessions that are free. So uh, give it a go. So one thing, so I, I can't play chess at all. I'm not sure about Matt, Autumn, no. <laughs> so I'm, I, uh, I, I wouldn't even know uh, what to do in the first, uh, for the first step. Uh, talk, talk through some of the strategy of, of playing chess, and think about how, uh, how you think about strategy. You know, in the work that you do at, you know, at school, um, in terms of the, the the thesis that you were also laying out for us. Like, what role does that sort of forward thinking, uh, four and five steps ahead? Uh, you know, type of thing. Hold on one sec. Okay. Basically, the question that I'm trying to work out is, how do you go about thinking about strategy, not only in chess as a game, but also just kind of in your own personal life, Rochelle?
3: Mm. So I think I, I've gotten this question a lot, and I'm not not—I'm never really sure how to answer it. Um, because okay. I started playing chess when I was so young, that kind of thinking was always inherent. Like, it was mm. since, like, I'm eight years old, and... If I have to win, I have to think ahead, Um, and so that's like okay. Well, now I'm writing a paper as a ten-year-old. So how do I Mm. get from beginning, middle, conclusion? Um, And so it's always been like because I have to do this in one field, and I have to do it in other fields. That's how I do it. Like it's never really something that I think about, uh, that I thought about. I do know that I'm not good at math and science. Like many people say that you should be because you're good at chess. Um, I do think a lot all the time and overthink everything but I'm starting to think that that's because I'm a Virgo and not because I'm a chess player so (laughs) I'm not really sure
2: (laughs) (laughs) self-reflection is key um cool cool (laughs) So uh, what's, what's your Stanford experience been like? I, I know you already mentioned kind of the, the larger arc, um, but in terms of the activities, the leadership, um, the different uh, places that you've been able to invest your time, uh, what have you focused on?
3: Um, so freshman year, as I was coming into my blackness, I decided to join the NAACP, um, and I was a member of the Criminal Justice Committee um, because criminal justice is something that I've always been passionate about. Um, especially because I grew up during stop and frisk, the stop and frisk era, mm-hmm. and I grew up in the inner city, and so the relationship between between cops and members of my community was also always something that that interested me. Um, and then, of course, mm-hmm. like shows like Law and Order, um, S.U., which takes place in New York, that always like put this idea into my head that black people are bad, and I joined mm-hmm. the committee to understand why. Um, or to understand like why, to understand why I, was, I was primed to think in that way, and then also what the truth is about our criminal justice system. Um, and so with that, I got to put on events, like got to meet the Freedom Riders. Um, and then my sophomore year, I decided to co-chair that committee. Um, and that was when the Black Lives Matter protests and movement kind of jumped off. Um, And so really jumping into organizing protests, attending protests, um, it was really a a make or break for for me at Stanford um, because um, now that I was black, I guess, I was also in a very white place and having to explain to my white classmates why my life also mattered as a human being, and why I why protesting is necessary, and why because you want to study for for something um, is important and it's cool. Like of course you'll we'll get your degree your your grades, but that shouldn't be an excuse to limit to silence my voice. Um, and having like to articulate that was was hard for me because I didn't understand why that wasn't just common sense or common breaking even. Um, And it was where I felt trapped at Stanford the most. Um, I didn't want, like I didn't care about the political theorists that I was learning about. Um, I didn't feel supported by Stanford, um, by my classmates and I wanted to leave. I needed to leave. By the end of the year, I, yeah um I started having panic attacks and by the end of the year I was uh maxed out emotionally physically I just could not do Stanford anymore yeah
2: that makes sense Matt you have a question
1: hey Rochelle I have a question um and just to give you some perspective I graduated in 2012 and from 2008 to 2012 um we witnessed uh the the, the murdering of Oscar Grant as well as um, Trayvon Martin. Now, Oscar Grant was local, it was in the Bay, so we felt that physically a lot more. But one thing that I think that is definitely connecting, I guess, our eras in Stanford is social media and how it's, you know, kind of gotten even larger and and more impactful over the years. So, you know, when it was Oscar Grant and, and Trayvon Martin, it was a lot of Facebook and Twitter, But I wanted to ask you, especially somebody who strategizes and kind of uh, corrals support to kind of bring boots on the ground. uh, How have you used social media to kind of disseminate uh, the best message and also promote engagement? And how has that changed over the years for you? Um, So
3: I think with social media stuff. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so with social media stuff, I think it was more so like, I don't know. I just had a bunch of Facebook awards and Facebook grants. I wasn't really like trying to disseminate um, information. It was, I don't know. I didn't really, I felt like social media was the most dangerous um, because like Facebook only shows you your point of view. Um, and so I was very much like, and I thought my point of view was, was right. And so as a sophomore, right. um, seeing only stuff that I, I thought of and like having stuff or being further primed to, to continue that point of view, it was very hard for me to articulate to someone who didn't have my beliefs um, why I was right and why they were wrong. Um, and so I, like social media just wasn't, wasn't the best for me um and so I was very much an in-person get in your face knock if you buck kind of person um and so that's how like that's how I wanted or that's how I wanted to articulate my viewpoints because otherwise I would just argue with people and it wouldn't help because I think I'm right you think you're right and we're just not getting anywhere
1: or it's a lot of groupthink where you know kind of everybody kind of revs each other up everybody's on the same side and things the message can get convoluted sometimes
3: right like I remember this one point um like I was in, I just sleep flee my freshman year um I thought it'd be cool to like get rid of all my requirements and in, in one year and I thought it was so smart turns out reading a bunch of like old racists and like just masculinity problems and it was just very problematic right. um and so As a sophomore, like I posted an article and then one of my friends was like, this is why students at Stanford don't feel like they can say what they want because like when someone has an opposing view, all you do is shut them down. And I was like, you're dumb. They were like, you see, this is what I'm talking about. And I was like, I don't care. (laughs) And like, that's just not how you have like an argument. Um, And yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's just emotionally charging. Um, And so I probably could have done handle that better. I probably still would have called him dumb, but I
1: would have explained why, but still, yes. <laughs> so I am I, I won't kind of keep it on this this tangent for too long, but just tying it back to chess, it sounds like eventually, once you realize that you were only seeing it from one point of view, you know, in order to get the, the full spectrum, you had to see it or try to see it from somebody else's point of view. So one, is that similar to chess? Because I suck at chess, so who am I to theorize about yeah. strategy? But, you know, I imagine a large part of it is kind of, you know, looking at the different potential outcomes that your competitor um, has, or the options that they have. So, how has that kind of bled over into you looking at the perspectives of others from a political or <laughs> social political game. standpoint?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it was probably more so. I don't know. I feel like y'all are trying to like get me to say something about chess, but I can't. It was more so law. It was. It was definitely my my the classes that my mom put me in when I was younger to understand and to articulate an argument. Um, so it wasn't like strategically looking for the best way to like clap back at this person. It was kind of like, okay, well, why does he think that he's right? Um, why do I think that I'm right? Right. Who is right?
1: All right. Well, I have one more chess question. It's like, no, I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) 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 Well, I
2: guess, uh, to get the last chess question out, uh, can you just tell people, uh, you know, <laughs> your status in terms of uh, the chess world? We're super proud of you over here uh, on this side, and we would love to, to share that with the rest of the world. Um, and then we could get back to, you know, the the other uh, facets of yourself.
3: Sure. Hi, world. Um, I am currently uh, one of the top ranking women chess players in America, and i i'm pretty sure i'm still the top african-american chess player um and i'm currently trying to become the first african-american female chess master um and it it's something my grandmother wanted and so it's why i fight so hard for it granted it's easier said than done um so we'll see what happens definitely if you want to support in any way I would greatly appreciate it because tournaments cost money and I don't have any. So, yeah. Uh,
2: What does support look like? So it sounds like there's some monetary, obviously the financial side, but what, what, what does sponsorship look like?
3: For sure. So um, I I can give an example. So like uh, tournaments are usually in, in major U S cities. So like Chicago, DC, um, Etc. Etc. And so in order to play in that tournament, I have to pay for the entry fee to participate in the tournament. Okay. I also have to pay for airfare to get to the tournament. And then, of course, hotel fees to get there as well. Granted, I know that the, the Black Cardinal Network is pretty large and expensive. So if anyone wants to host me while they come play chess, that would also be dope. Um, Definitely. So yeah, that's, that's what tournaments,
2: um and funding looks like for me right now okay cool so to everybody listening uh and everyone in our network please support rochelle uh as she goes on to become uh the first black woman grandmaster uh that'll be so dope and we'll be so proud um but i know that's not the only thing that really gets your gears going uh rochelle so you've mentioned uh your honors thesis um and then also your passion for law so you are thinking about uh, going to law school, right?
3: Yes. I just finished the application process, um, and I, I'm wow. hearing back, I've heard back from all the law schools that I've applied to. Um, and so I am I just paid my deposit for the University of Michigan, actually. Um,
2: cool. Congrats.
3: So thank you. That's where I might be going. I might defer because I'm pretty stressed out with academic learning um yeah but yes that's where I'm at um still waiting to hear back I got waitlisted to schools that I also want to really want to attend so waiting to see if I get off the waitlist for those um yes also network if you know anyone that's in Penn Law admissions tell them how great of a person I am and that I really want to come to their school Talk
2: that talk. talk. <laughs> Shoot your shot, 2017. <laughs> each and every day. Also Stanford. Penn Law admissions. Stanford Law admissions. Michigan, shout out to you. Yeah. Um, but look out for, for Rochelle Ballantine class of 2017. Um, okay, cool. All right, so Rochelle, I know you have to uh, head out. Uh, I don't. What What do you have? You have classes tonight. You have. You're what? You're a co-president of BSU right now.
3: I am co president of BSU. We just wrapped up our last. Uh, it was just admin weekend for the class of 2021. That oh, wow. Too. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Just, you know, just what was that like? Class of 2021? No, I don't. Yeah. Nah. Um, no.
3: I don't do it was. <laughs> I think it was just like they were asking me all these questions and they were like, oh, I'm so excited to see you next year. And I was like, you won't because I won't be here because I'm graduating. <laughs> um, I think every year it's kind of just like, every year, every Admit weekend I've experienced, it's been tell me why you love Stanford so much. And I think I've gotten to a point where I'm just like, yes, I love Stanford and I think you should go. But I also think like you should know the whole story um and so it's kind of been right um and so i don't know if i'm doing the best job of representing stanford in the in the greatest of light but i do think like stanford isn't for everyone and i don't think that you should go to a school just because it's the best i think you should go to a school because you think you can thrive here um and i've i've definitely thrived somewhat but i've also struggled and got my ass kicked and Mm. Yes, there have been ups, but there have been downs for sure.
2: Yeah. If, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what, what are some of the supports um, or resources that could have been provided for you or provided mm-hmm. to you and some of your other classmates that, that would have really lifted you up and, and made sure that those downs weren't as down?
3: I think we take like, for granted our health a lot. Um, black people in general are, are hide their mental issues so well. Um, and we definitely grew up in a community that um, is a believer of the pray it away um, mm. as opposed to like dealing with your issues. And I wish that Stanford had more support um, for, I guess like for your friends for knowing when like the signs for when someone is having like an anxiety attack or a panic attack or just a mental breakdown and then also resources um where they can go like stanford's much better now like we have black caps um and so we have like counselors that are like that look like us and that know what we're going through that we can talk to but there's only like three of them for the entire black community so
0: Hey, listeners, a quick PSA. If you happen to still be a Stanford student or if you are an incoming Stanford student, we want to make sure that you know about CAPS. As Rochelle said, CAPS is the Counseling and Psychological Services portion of Vaden Health Center. So if you want someone to talk to, um, make sure you go to vaden.stanford.edu and check out CAPS and set an appointment so that you can talk to someone that's on campus.
2: Okay. Uh also to to the network, are you guys listening? There are three uh <laughs> three um people providing mental health support on campus. Uh that's really important for us to to you know rally around and think about in a in a new way as we go forward. Um are there any other suggestions or or thoughts about ways in which we could have um you know better supported students like yourself?
3: Um I don't know if it's like a, a an alumni thing. I think it's just I feel like because we are black at Stanford, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to live up to that um, label, um, and it's not the easiest thing to do for sure. um Like Jan always has her Black Excellence speech that she gives at every Advent weekend and at every Black Community Welcome, and like it all it always gets us geared up. Like wow we just lost this greatness there's so many great people around us what if i'm not great what if i don't live up to that expectation how Mm -hmm. do i learn how to fail and be okay with failing um and so so i think yeah i think understanding that failure is okay and just because you have to work twice as hard twice as hard to get to where the white people are um that doesn't mean you have to be superhuman which is and is real. advice that i probably should have t- taken my senior year before jumping into all my leadership roles but i'm stubborn so
2: cool uh so rochelle thank you so much for making time for us uh we're really excited about everything that you're doing uh i am still on the diaspora somehow as you already know so i received a ton of your emails and i always appreciate getting an inside scoop uh on what's happening within the community um, I really appreciate your candor, um, your openness, and, and willingness to kind of share a little bit about your story, but then also, you know, some of the things that uh, that, that you wish could have been better about your Stanford experience. I think that sort of honesty is extremely important. Um, I know personally to, to our team over here, but then also to the alumni community as well. So um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. We're really proud of you, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us on The Take Back.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And that wraps up today's episode. This episode has been brought to you by the Stanford National Black Alumni Association and the Young Alumni Connectors.
0: This episode was also produced by Kelsey Wharton and Autumn Williams and produced and sound engineered by Matthew Ashton. The Take Back is filmed at the Innovator Studio and in Impact Hub in Washington, D.C.